Hello, my name is Andrew Pollard. Welcome to our podcast series, The Oxford Colloquy, bringing the facts, stories and people behind the science. On the podcast today, I'll be talking with Fergus Walsh, BBC medical editor. Since 2006, he's been reporting on health and medical issues for the BBC, culminating in his reporting uh, during the pandemic of 2020 and 2021. Fergus Walsh, BBC medical editor and a medical correspondent at the BBC since 2006, a winner of multiple broadcasting awards for health journalism. Fergus, you've uh, been at the BBC since 2006, so part of the furniture now. Where did all that start? So it started actually back in 1984 um, when I left um, post-grad journalism school down in, in Cornwall, uh, the same one actually that my colleague Hugh Pym went to. He was, he was the year above me. We'd, we'd never met there. And I started freelancing for the BBC I think it was about May 1984, um, and freelance for a, a couple of years. And then finally, the first day I walked into Broadcasting House was on the day that Michael Heseltine resigned from the cabinet over the Westland helicopter affair. That was in, I think, March 1986. And I took a job um, in, in the BBC newsroom in 1986, and uh, I've been employed there ever since so i you know if you take my freelance time i'm i'm 38 years now and counting so been uh been here rather a long time and were you doing health journalism right at the beginning no i i i was first of all a writer and a uh a report a general reporter and then in uh, in 80 uh, seven, um, I covered the big storms. I was a general reporter. I remember covering the big the big storms of 1987. I, I slept through those, but <laughs> I, I do remember the consequences the next morning. Well, I still remember driving in on the morning. Uh, I think it was October 1987. I may have that date wrong. Um, uh, from North London into Broadcasting House and seeing huge branches of trees on, on the ground. And it, it was obviously a huge story. Um, I did that. And then um, the following year, I started working with Joshua Rosenberg, who was the legal and home affairs correspondent. Um, and I eventually became legal and home affairs reporter. Then I then I, re I replaced um, Joshua when he went to TV. So I've been a, a correspondent for the BBC now since I think 1998. Um, uh, sorry, 19, I've been a correspondent for the BBC since 1988. Um, and so I did crime uh, and legal affairs for a while. And then I decided in those days, you either did telly or you did radio. I decided I wanted to do telly. Um, and so I went over and I sort of started again, as it were, over at Television Centre in Shepherd's Bush, um, which is, no longer exists except as uh, very fancy uh, homes uh, and flats and a nice uh, uh, private club. Um, and I, I started out again there as a general reporter. And then I, I actually started covering health for the first time in about 1993, and I became the health correspondent. But in those days, I was covering the politics of health. So, you know, Virginia Bottomley was health secretary, then Frank Dobson, Alan Milburn, uh, and a few others. And 
whilst that was interesting um, and obviously important, I found it immensely frustrating that on one day I might be covering, you know, shortage of doctors or or there might be some disciplinary action against doctors. The next day there might be some new development in vaccines or in in heart disease. And I felt that they were two very different specialties. And so to sort of fast forward to 2004, um, when I was asked to, you know, would you like to go back to health? And I said, well, I, I'd, I'd happily, I don't want to go back to doing what I was doing before, but I would happily be medical correspondent. So we talked about it for about 30 seconds and then um, that was that. And so I became medical correspondent in 2004 and have been doing it ever since. And what's really interesting is that most of the time, and I used to kind of joke that, you know, it, my job was there to um, give news which was uplifting and, and to give hope to people because they were these medical breakthroughs. I also covered ethics and difficult issues there. But I used to say to, to one of my bosses, you know, if there is ever a pandemic, I'm like that person in an emergency, you break the glass. And, and that's where I would really come into my own. And instead of being like the last news item on the bulletin, it'll be the first. And of course, we had the first one of those in, in 2009 with swine flu, but thankfully it was just not that serious. And But nobody nobody expected what came, you know, back in 2020. So uh, how um, do you decide... Um, on what the stories should be. I mean, are you always um, battling with uh, people who are the political correspondents to try and get your slot? Or do the editors kindly give you a slot regularly? There's Nobody has a, um, a, a slot by right. Um, so on any given day, on the 10 o'clock news, there might be, let's say, eight different reports now, if you consider the number of staff we have and foreign bureau and, and specialists, that means there are some correspondents you see far less than others. Um, and obviously during the pandemic, I was in the position where I could get on and lead the bulletin every day of the week. Um, but now I'm in a very different circumstance where you're really having to pitch your material and say, look, I've got this really interesting story. And instead of it kind of walking uh, to the top of the bulletin, I, I have you have to use these kind of arts with, with the help of my colleagues. And I've got very good colleagues who will then um, try and find a slot for it and agree a day on it and hope the Today programme and breakfast will run it and then see if it has enough momentum to make it through the day. So it's it's harder now to get on, but as a result, I'm what I try to do to kind of compensate that is instead of doing stories in a huge hurry, and I've I've edited lead stories for the bulletin in you know 25 minutes that have been three minutes long, and you wonder afterwards how you did it. Um, I might take a month over putting together a story, um, or even longer, uh, and you try and come up with a a, a beautifully crafted piece of television um, where the pictures and the words really sing together um, so that you, you give a different experience um, uh, and you try and make an impact that way. So uh, when you are putting together a story, um, I, I sort of, uh, listening to you, think you must know a lot about the topic. But as you've described, you've been um, a uh, went to uh, journalism training and then you've been a journalist through that period but a lot of what you're discussing is quite complex science 
Um, so how do you turn those complex health issues into something understandable for the public? What method do you use? Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting question because people kind of a lot often assume I, I've got some kind of scientific background and I, I'm always very open that I don't. I'm a journalist first and foremost. And I suppose, you know, having studied English at university, um, that the skill I, I have, if I have one, is to take complex ideas and complex uh, issues and make them presentable in a form which one hopes the experts will be happy with um, and that also uh, the public will, will, will get. It was a lovely um, uh, scientist who uh, I won't say his name, but uh, I did a piece about his research. This must be 15 years ago. And he, he told me the following day that his wife, he'd spent the, his entire life researching this field. And his wife, after watching my report and my interview, I'd had to coax um, some uh, material out of him in terms of explaining what he did. She said, do you know, I, I now, after 40 years, understand what you do all day at work, <laughs> which I, I took as a compliment. And unfortunately, he, he took in the spirit in which it was intended. So you're trying to convey complex science in a way. And I, you know, I, I don't want the scientists to throw their shoe at, 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 at the, the TV and say, well, you've just... Uh, trivialize this and oversimplify and and i really think it's crucial that you don't oversimplify uh, especially when it comes to things like risk that i think the public are far more sophisticated and, uh, and able to take the idea about risk it's not like something which we call about vaccines that is a hundred percent safe um we can talk about levels of risk and crucially the balance of risk versus benefits and i think if you do that the public are far more likely to accept um, whether it's vaccines or or medicines if if they get as full a picture as possible. So you you've been, as you said, doing this for uh, many decades and uh, thirty eight years of the BBC, but but certainly a, quite a number of those covering medical and health stories. Um, uh, when I went to medical school, it was only five years. So you've done a lot more years than me. So do, do you now have this uh, big um, portfolio of knowledge that you can apply when you get the next story? Um, or are you learning from scratch each time? Well, no, you do. You definitely um, get themes that come up. Um, so whether it's a story about the resurgence of measles due to um, uh, problems with with the take up of vaccines that that stretch back to um, well Andrew Wakefield and and beyond, um, those things crop up from time to time. Whether it's something about malaria, where I I've been to uh, Ghana to see uh, trials of uh, of uh, the GSK uh, malaria vaccine. So when then there's um, uh, this very hopefully very good vaccine that Oxford University have developed. Um, you carry that knowledge on. Um, although I do need to remind myself. I mean, somebody often says to me, "Oh, I, I saw you on TV last week," and I, I often then have to think, "Well, what was I doing last week? I can't remember what I had for breakfast." So oh, you, I think we all have that problem. <laughs> you, you have to kind of remind yourself, but then it comes back. It comes back, and it and I think with the pandemic. Um, so much has happened, but you you re you retain a core level of of knowledge, which hopefully, um, as a journalist and as 
policy policy influencers and as, as people coming up with the vaccines doing the trials it's important that we retain that that knowledge and ensure that um the people who make the decisions don't forget what um everybody went through over the last few years well and you've reported a lot on vaccines over uh, over the the last three decades or so um, and about infectious diseases and uh, in fact i remember being interviewed by you in the 1990s about the genetics of meningitis um, which was um, uh, i was at st mary's hospital at the time um, and remembered a very fresh-faced Fergus Walsh um, asking questions at the end of a very uh, long press conference, which um, I'd been asked to speak at, having not got uh, any more knowledge about the subject uh, than the journalist, because I'd just been given the press release um, to <laughs> beforehand because there was no one else available to do the press conference. Um, and I, I, what was interesting was that your question that you asked me, which was then shown on the news, that uh, was also the uh, one which was reported in all the newspapers rather than all the other questions the other journalists had asked. And um, I, I think that's a, an interesting um, reflection um, of the, the way that you were able to then draw out the information from me. Well, yes, and, and thank you for doing that interview and, and others since, many of them. Um, interestingly, I have been part of one of your trials at Oxford. I think it was something like 2006 or 2007 um, yeah 2006 I think. 2006 and that was uh, against uh, h5n1 um avian flu and i the previous year had been out to vietnam uh, where there'd been uh, a very worrying study about uh, uh, two children who'd seemingly one had passed human to human transmission in close contact in a family of h5n1 and there'd been you know obviously so this is a, a bird flu virus yes and and that was uh, and it, obviously h5n1 remains a major concern about what might cause the next pandemic thankfully um that hasn't happened yet um but there was real concern back then because we were getting dozens of of deaths um every year and i can remember going out to Vietnam um, and uh, with my cameraman. And we had a, a minder um, from the Communist Party who was sent with us everywhere we went. And we went, we traveled down um, the Mekong Delta about three hours drive to find the village where where this particular outbreak had happened. And we went down in a, in a minivan. It's very hot and sticky and humid there. Um, and when we got there, um, we got out of the van and my glasses steamed up um, and so did the camera, the lens, the in, internal glass inside these big old cameras all steamed up. And I said to my cameraman, Steve, because we'd had we'd had air conditioning in our little minivan that we were driving down these these rickety, muddy roads. And I said to Steve, well, can we not just, you know, override it and he said no, no when when the red button comes up that there's humidity in the camera we can't shoot anything and i said well how long will it take to clear and he said well i don't know so uh and i said well we we've got to go and feed the piece back in four hours and it's a three-hour drive so we've got we, we you know we're really up against it because we've got to write the piece as we're going back so to cut a long story short I, I back you always back time in television to kind of the point at which you have to broadcast. 
And I said, we've got to leave here in 45 minutes. And anyway, uh, poor old Steve, he took the lens off and he was waving the camera around. And after 40 minutes, the little uh, warning shutter uh, was went, went away. And we shot everything that was in that piece in five minutes, including my piece to camera, some images of some chickens running around and and uh, the families who were delightful. Um, and then we got back to uh, Ho Chi Minh City and we went to feed the piece um, uh, from the broadcasting station, which was a military base. Um, and they had never had uh, a foreign TV crew um, come in before. So we went past lots of armed guards with our tape and we didn't have our minder with us. And so nobody was checking it. And it made it made what was then probably still the nine o'clock news um, with a feed from Vietnam. So that was a memorable, a memorable trip. And then I, I very distinctly remember that uh, we were working um, in Oxford on vaccine uh, development and you took part I'm in a clinical trial of a bird flu vaccine, and I distinctly remember you doing your piece to camera uh, while the blood sample was being taken out of your arm, which I thought was particularly dramatic for for the nine o'clock news. Yes, well, you you do have to you, you get into the habit. I I am a real supporter of medical trials because we ask people to be on camera with all kinds of conditions and volunteering for trials, and so I feel I. I feel that I should take part as well. So, I mean, I've been on a, a number of different trials. That's the only one where I've had um, a, a vaccine or a drug. Most of the other ones, I've been a healthy volunteer. Um, but you get into the habit. Well, we, we are recruiting for other studies first. <laughs> okay. So that that was um, um, H5N1, a p- potential p- pandemic threat. Um, you've also, as you mentioned, reported on the swine flu pandemic of 2009, which was an H1N1 influenza uh, virus, and subsequently on other outbreaks, uh, including Ebola. Um, so when the COVID-19 pandemic started, were you prepared? Did you have everything set up for that already? Or was it a bit of a shock to find yourself suddenly in a lockdown um, having to report every day, as you said, on the news. Uh, it was a com- it was a complete shock. We were not prepared, um, just like the rest of the world was not prepared. Even though there were very good people who'd been saying for a long time, just look, you know, look at SARS, um, look at Zika, look at um, swine flu, look at all the other threats that have been out there, Ebola, um, and all the near misses we had. And I think what I definitely underestimated the um the level of threat i think it's fair to say i feel i was too reassuring to start with um i was reflecting the sort of official advice but i felt that but everybody most people most officials were uh, too reassured too early on and i think it kind of changed um in late january i remember you saying um later just how i think you were at a meeting in paris where um, you th- that was the point at which you really realized how how serious it was. And I, so I, I, I feel I feel I wasn't fully prepared. Um, uh, but then when I really started seeing pictures from Italy, from Bergamo, that then it kind of really came home um, just how serious and how international this threat was. I, th- I think you're you're right. the the penny really dropped earliest. Uh, with those who are looking at the spread between people and particularly the modelers who are predicting what uh, that spread might turn into. 
Um, but of course, a lot of that didn't um, uh, make the mainstream initially. It took a while um, before we all realised just uh, what a, a huge uh, threat this was going to be to human health. So, with um, uh, that reporting that you were you were doing during lockdowns and and in between, as you say, uh, uh, almost um, the, the uh, a sweet shop of opportunity um, for reporting for a. A health correspondent. Um, did you um, find uh, that it was easy to provide a balanced perspective? Because, of course, this is one of the the biggest difficulties. You, you've mentioned um, that perhaps you were too reassuring at the beginning, but was information easy to get hold of um, to provide some balance, whether it's um, about testing capabilities um, or the science around the vaccines? Well, there was too much information, to be frank. Um, there was a bombardment. The, uh, the daily press briefings from Downing Street, which at the beginning were um, great because you had all that information, um, months in, seven days a week, um, it became quite quite draining. I remember one bank holiday Monday, because it was beautiful weather in the early part of 2020, and I think it was Pretty Patel who was leading the press conference. And I was at home, and I think it was a bank holiday Monday, and that was kind of one of the nadir points for me, where you're trying to sit in the garden, trying not to work. But of course, you have to. I had to, uh, even though that day I had a day off, I had to sit through the 45 minutes of the press conference to make sure I didn't miss anything. And I did have this anxiety about missing stuff. But for, for me, the biggest problem, once we had um, uh, we had cases here, we had serious cases here within the health service, was getting access. And I remember going to um, a press briefing. This was just before lockdown, when Number 10 was about to change its view um, on, on whether actually to have a lockdown. Uh, and all the great and the good were there. And I remember saying to, I think it was to Steve Powis, um, that the Chinese media had been given greater access to the hospitals uh, in in uh, uh, in Wuhan and elsewhere than we had had, and, and he said, "I hear you, I hear you," and I, it took me a long time to negotiate access to get into what happened to be a University College Hospital, and um, because. There were very good reasons not to let the media in, which were that we were living in a pandemic. And so there's an the infection risk, I guess. There's an infection them. risk. And also the staff are worked off their feet. They're not letting the public in. So why why on earth would you want to have journalists in getting in the way? But of course, there is, and, and PPE was precious. Um, so why would you waste it on us? So I, but I said to them, look, if we are going to show the public the reasoning behind why a lockdown is is needed and the level of threat and the impact on the nhs we have to show it to them it's one thing a minister saying it or even a chief medical officer it's another thing them seeing it and having an independent um team looking at it and i think that that piece we did in early april it actually went out on the day that boris johnson went into intensive care it did reverberate um, because it showed for the first time the the level of um, impact and the staff uh, really dealing with something that they genuinely did not know how to cope with and they had very few tools um, to combat. Yes, I think that there was a very powerful moment to to actually 
see that firsthand. And, you know, even though I'm a pediatrician and work in the hospitals all the time, um, that uh, image from adult intensive care units that you were able to project was extremely powerful. And uh, it, it reminds me of your colleague Hugh Pym's piece uh, sometime later, uh, after the vaccines had rolled out, showing empty intensive care units uh, when vaccine rollout and protection from them had really stopped those huge numbers of hospital admissions and just as impactful to show that contrast. Yeah, absolutely. And and we had tried um, to show the current situation and it, and it was really, it was great to be able to go back to hospitals that I'd been to where they had been so busy and had effectively convert had converted operating theatres um, into intensive care uh, units, and they'd gone into side rooms. And University College Hospital, for for one, had effectively that tower had become just a pandemic treatment um, coronavirus treatment centre. Um, to be able to go back and say now uh, they still busy. But um, the impact of vaccines has really transformed things was important. And also to give messages where, for example, you know, there was some uncertainty early on about whether pregnant women should have the vaccine. But time and time again, um, I went into intensive care units where there were pregnant women um, uh, in, in, in intensive care with COVID. And then one time, I remember I did manage to speak to a mum who'd very nearly lost her life and her child's um, and she'd just not got round to having the vaccine. So having her testimony to say, you know, I wish I'd had the vaccine. I'm lucky to be alive. My child's lucky to be alive. Um, that is very, uh, that has a strong impact with the public. And uh, so your um, experiences um, on the COVID side, I, I guess also informed your interest in reporting on the vaccines. And uh, you reported a lot on the developments here in Oxford of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, and if I were criticised uh, for um, perhaps bias by reporting uh, more on what we were doing in Oxford than on the other developments. So wh how did that come about? Wh were you biased um, or uh, is there some other explanation? Well, uh, I was very keen. If the... If the um, vaccines, the other vaccines had been developed in the UK, I would have been happy to equally have given them as much promise, uh, prominence as the Oxford vaccine. But, you know, I I obviously have good contacts at Oxford over the years, including yourself. Um, and I was keen to, to follow British research that was happening. But the first vaccine result that I I reported um, was of, um, I think, the Pfizer uh, vaccine. And that, for me, was the whole, for me personally, my turning point day. I think it might have been the 9th of November 2020, yeah. maybe may a few days before that. But I remember, <laughs> I think it was their head of um, uh, medical affairs saying that this is a great day for humanity. And and I, I can remember having such a smile on my face. So I, I was keen to report the science wherever it was coming from. And the I, I think it was uh, it was early April um, or it was maybe it was April the 23rd. You'll probably know better than me. Yes, uh, it was. 2020. Yes. Yeah. And being in the room where uh, the first 
volunteer received their injection for me was a very powerful moment. And I, the, I remember... The first volunteer in Europe. Yes, exactly. And so that was important. The first volunteer in Europe, um, Eliza Granato, um, and I, I filmed her, uh, We, myself and my team, um, Adam, uh, our cameraman, uh, filmed that. And there was an extraordinary sense of privilege being there because, you know, we there were only four people in the room. Two of them were BBC and, and there was the two medical staff, plus, of course, the volunteer. Um, it was a you know reasonably small room. We were doing as much social distancing as we could, and so the fact that you weren't in there, I'm sure you would have been interested in being in there. And I remember in her book, um, Vaxers, um, uh, Sarah Gilbert saying that she heard about the first um, uh, injection, the first volunteer receiving it from listening to the BBC. So th there is a sense of privilege and a huge sense of responsibility, and and that that is one of the things that. I, I have grappled with right throughout my career is is presenting this level of um, benefit over risk, explaining how the vaccines work. You know whether it's a protein based vaccine, whether it's a um, you know viral vector vaccine, or whether it's mRNA. Um, uh, trying to explain those in an accessible way, um, whilst also not annoying the scientists by oversimplifying it's it's, it's really important yes i so when you were um, filming that i was outside in the corridor um because uh, with our social distancing rules i couldn't be in the same room with uh, with the others there but uh, i think very important to to bring that story um into everyone's homes um on the 23rd of april 2020. Now, a, a few days later, um, a fake news website reported that that first volunteer had died, which was not true. Um, but you were then uh, involved in that. In fact, I, I received the news on the Sunday morning, just a few days after that. Um, and we spoke on the phone then. And in fact, you then talked directly um, to the volunteer um, and broadcast that. Yeah. I, I, and Eliza, um, she was so uh, helpful um and so i did a quick interview with her uh, quite light-hearted saying no i'm i'm not dead i'm fine actually i'm here drinking a cup of tea um but it had a more serious side to it she had uh, family um, and some of the other volunteers uh family abroad uh, there was talk about lots of the volunteers being in intensive care um uh, and so you know it was it was very malign uh miss well it, it was fake news the, the the one thing in our favor was it had said she was dead and that was pretty easy to disprove so i i put that up on twitter and we reported it and 99.9 percent .9 of the of the story went away although there were a couple of people who then said you really this was probably something done before and you should have got her to hold up uh, that day's newspaper as a proof of life but uh, you're never going to win all the people over and and strangely, whereas the first few months, actually most of the first year, most of the comments on social media were largely positive. Once the vaccines had started being rolled out, I felt that um, there were battle lines drawn on social media and it became a much more hostile place for me. Um, and I'm sure for a lot of those involved uh, in the pandemic generally, um, and uh, became the, the uglier, an uglier place, unfortunately, um, and has remained so. 
And uh, I, I think uh, if you look back over the last 25 years, there's been a lot of problems with misinformation about vaccines, some of which has been amplified um, in the media. Um, but it, it really has been quite a problem. And you mentioned earlier about the uh, Andrew Wakefield, who um, ha- has is now a discredited uh, doctor um, here in the UK who promoted some misinformation about MMR vaccine and autism, um, which is now known not to be true. Um, but do you think that uh, UK reporting of these scientific stories has got better um, over that 25-year period, where there, I think there was a lot of uncertainty about how to handle that MMR story at the time. Yeah, I, I really think it's got so much better. Um, there was some really pretty shocking reporting uh, back in the late 90s, uh, including some very poor reporting by parts of the BBC, which I think has been ad- admitted. Um, and part of the problem was there was a little bit of a vacuum when it came to getting science experts on. Um, And so that's one of the reasons why the Science Media Centre was set up. And I think they've been really heavily instrumental in improving the availability of scientists on a range of topics um, and also uh, ensuring and promoting the importance of specialist journalism. And throughout the pandemic, actually, I think the what, what people disparagingly call the mainstream media have reported um, the science of the pandemic and the vaccines um, and the other uh, uh, medicines that have been developed on the whole pretty well. Um, and we've been pretty well served. I mean, always things that you can do better, but so much better than we were doing 25 years ago. I think uh, just to clarify, the, the Science Media Centre and brings together health and science journalists uh, with the, the scientists and the experts um, to uh, to allow some communication between the two uh, to hopefully um, give direct access in a way that perhaps is much harder to organise normally. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they held a number of briefings throughout. And what happens with uh, the Science Media Centre um, when some... Uh, strange report comes out or some scientist makes an outlandish st- statement because very outlandish um, claims need very, very strong proofs that they will, um, they'll analyze it, they'll get experts in the field to analyze it. And then instead of people just putting out a quote of Professor X or Mr. or Mrs. Y, um, they'll then have four or five other uh, experts in their field able to give expert analysis, which is very helpful to general reporters and indeed to specialists like myself. And uh, going back to the MMR story, again, one of the problems there was an attempt to try and have balance uh, between the for and against arguments. Do you think that that is better understood about balance when you're referring to evidence? It should be about weight of evidence rather than um, than just allowing both sides in an adversarial way to be able to debate. Yeah, absolutely crucial. And I remember doing a piece about MMR um, and the various views there were, and I was doing something in the studio, and on the screen behind me I had a scrolling list of the hundreds of organisations from royal colleges to academies of medical sciences to experts and charities saying that the MMR vaccine 
um, was safe and did not cause autism um, amidst the the reporting of 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 the claims of one discredited um, doctor who I think had tried to patent his own uh, uh, measles single measles vaccine. So um, it, it, what what balanced reporting I- isn't is he says this and she says that. And on one side, you might have the weight of scientific opinion, and on the other, you would have a rogue view. And and the media do like outsiders; they do like the the the, the, the sort of cachet of the the lone voice. And you know, sometimes the lone voice can be right. Um, but what you have to do when you have a lone voice saying something against everyone else is to then look at the balance of or the weight of evidence, uh, and you have to help the public by showing well, the weight of evidence here is quite clearly that the COVID vaccines um, are generally safe, um, well tolerated. They do and can have some side effects, um, but in terms of the balance of benefit versus risk, it's very heavily um, in favor of, of having the vaccine, especially the older you are and the more uh, medical issues that you have, and I think that's been one of the one of the things. Because obviously, with the the um, Oxford and then Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, we had the issue about potential rare uh, blood clots, which of course much more likely to get if you get COVID, um, which led to the amendment of its use. Um, so, and it's and it's charting a path for that for the public. Um, I think is and doing it so they understand it is very important. Uh, about 20 uh, years ago, I was speaking to a journalist about these issues that you're raising. And she said to me, the job of journalists is to sell newspapers. It's not public health. Do you think that's the right way to frame journalism? Or do you think there is a wider responsibility? No, I, I, I absolutely disagree with that. Um, I think that uh, given, especially for, for, for the BBC, um, there's a responsibility to present the news, obviously in an engaging way, but not oversell it. I don't want to oversell stories because there are so many interesting and important developments um, and and often life-saving developments that you really have a responsibility. And I always try to remember that if I'm, say, doing a report about bowel cancer one day, that you know, a, a decent number of people that day, you know, quite a few people that day will have just found out they have a bowel cancer diagnosis. There are over 200,000 people living with that condition in the UK. You have to remember, given the the impact and the reach of what you do, that um, there are always going to be families touched by whatever issue you're reporting on and nowhere more so than with COVID. So how has the pandemic changed your reporting? Has, has it influenced the way that you approach your job? Yeah, I think it has. I, I mean, it's been a continuation in a sense of what I've, I've been doing, but at a much more pressured level uh, for many, many years. Um, but in some ways, it, it's been uh, discouraging because there's been so much unpleasant feedback um, from a, a minority of people, largely on social media, I've, I've largely withdrawn from Twitter as a, a result because you get such a lot of unpleasant feedback. 
Um, but it, what's been really encouraging is what has been born out of it, the acceleration in the development of, of vaccines, the, the fantastic recovery trial led by Oxford University actually looking, and I remember um, going to see Peter Horby uh, and Martin Landre, the two professors who, who helped set up that trial. Uh, and they, they said to me, you know, in swine flu, there were dozens and dozens and dozens of trials set up by individual trusts looking at different um, different drugs that might work, and they, they led nowhere. And they just said, let's, Good because let's the, because up. the studies were too small. Yeah, they were just too small. Let's set up a really simple study. We'll have does this drug make you more likely to live or die? Um, and they got hundreds of hospitals across the UK to take part, and they they gave us. Um, the, the the fact that dexamethasone, a cheap old steroid, I think reduced the chance of of dying for the most seriously ill patients in intensive care by about a third. And they also found um, things that didn't work um, as well. I, equally importantly, so um, it it reminded me just to have the the importance of of good clinical trials that really bad situations like a pandemic can actually accelerate. Um, research. Um, uh, and so for that, and in terms of reporting, it was just a reminder that uh, we have a very important role to play in informing the public. And when it comes to a really serious situation, uh, the biggest um, health story, and one of the biggest stories ever, um, I can't remember anything like it in my lifetime, that we have a central role and a really important role to play. So in a sense, my whole career, uh, sadly, has been, I'd much rather there had not been a pandemic, but that it, it happened when I just happened to be at the BBC and played a, uh, a, you know, a role in that. Um, I'm very grateful to, to have been there to do that. So, uh, Fergus, I think we all imagine you sitting on the edge of your seat waiting for the next story. But what, what do you do in your spare time to relax? So I try. Um, at the moment, I've, I've got a strange uh, splint on my left hand because I came off my bike um, a few weeks ago and I had surgery to reattach a ligament. But um, at the, what I try I, to I do hope you, you filmed the surgery. <laughs> I didn't, although... The doctor did say, well, I guess I know where you'd be if you weren't here now. And it's, it was very strange to be lying down in the uh, the uh, anaesthetic room and saying, normally I'm in here with a camera. So I'm very comfortable in hospitals. And uh, I, uh, I said, Look, just feel free, just carry on. Do, give me as many drugs as you can because uh, uh, it'll, I, I want to have a, a pleasant experience. And it was they were very good with me. Um, but so I, I, I try, I'm very interested in healthy aging. Um, uh, I'm in my 60s now, and uh, I would like to be around for quite some time. And I, I've done a lot of stories about the benefits of exercise, um, uh, as well as sleep and uh, diet in in healthy aging. It's not rocket science; actually, quite simple health messaging. So, so I I run very slowly, and I swim very slowly, and I cycle very slowly. But as a sort of combined effect. I try and do a couple of triathlons a year. Um, I'm a, I'm a plodder, um, but I've managed to get uh, some members of my some of my kids involved um, uh, in uh, doing the same similar thing as me. They're obviously much younger, um, and I, I I really like the idea of getting more 
years of healthy life as opposed to just living longer. It's so important um, that we do take um, responsibility for our own health. And I feel that, that that's such a key message that I would like to do more of to encourage um, us to age healthily. Fergus Walsh, BBC Medical Editor, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast and sharing some of your insights about reporting in the pandemic and about plodding into the future. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. That was the Oxford Colloquy. Thanks for joining us in our podcast, bringing you the facts, stories and people behind the science. So you might be wondering, what is a colloquy? We've called this podcast series the Oxford Colloquy. Well, a colloquy is a discourse or a conversation, and hopefully you'll agree that that's what we've been having. 